Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. and thank you for standing by. Welcome to the Pembina Pipeline Corporation 2021 First Quarter Results Conference Call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during this session, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. Please be advised that today's call conference is being recorded. If you require any further assistance, please press star 0. I will now let the hand the conference over to your speaker today, Cameron Goldat, Tim Bainas, Vice President, Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Thank you, Christy. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Pembina's conference call and webcast to review highlights from the first quarter of 2021. On the call with me today are Mick Delger, President and Chief Executive Officer, Scott Burroughs, Senior Vice President and Chief Financial Officer, Harry Anderson, Senior Vice President and Chief Operating Officer, Pipelines, Jared Sprout, Senior Vice President, Chief Operating Officer, Facilities, Sue Taylor, Senior Vice President, Marketing and New Ventures and Corporate Development Officer, and Janet LaDuca, Senior Vice President, External Affairs and Chief Legal and Sustainability Officer. I'd like to remind you that some of the comments made today may be forward-looking in nature and are based on PEMINA's current expectations, estimates, judgments, and projections. Forward-looking statements we may express or imply today are subject to risks and uncertainties which could cause actual results to differ materially from expectations. Further, some of the information provided refers to non-GAAP measures. To learn more about these forward-looking statements and non-GAAP measures, please see the company's management discussion and analysis dated May 6, 2021 for the period ended March 31, 2021, which is available online at Pemina.com and on both CDAR and EDGAR. I will now turn things over to Mick to make some opening remarks. Good morning, everybody. I uh, hope you're all doing well and enjoying the recovery of our sector. As you may have noted from the introduction, and as we announced yesterday, PEMINA has recently undertaken certain executive changes. Two of PEMINA's long-standing officers, Paul Murphy, Senior Vice President and Corporate Services Officer, and Jason Viune, Senior Vice President and Chief Operating Officer Pipelines, retired at the end of March. As a result of these retirements, Janet LaDuca has been promoted to Senior Vice President, External Affairs and Chief Legal and Sustainability Officer, and Harry Anderson has been appointed to Senior Vice President and Chief Operating Officer, Pipelines. On behalf of everyone at Pemina, I congratulate Paul and Jason on their retirements and thank them for their decades-long contributions to Pemina's success. I congratulate both Harry and Janet and I'm excited to work with them in their new roles. As Scott will discuss more fully in a moment, that in the first quarter of 2021, PEMITA delivered strong financial and operating results, reflecting increased commodity prices and sales and rising volumes on many of the systems and facilities. As we have talked about for each of the past few quarters, we continue to see steady increases in physical volumes on our systems, and we actually reached pre-pandemic levels in April. With many systems previously operating near take or pay levels throughout the second half of 2020, PEMINA is beginning to realize the anticipated benefits of its operational leverage, or torque, with incremental volumes providing higher margins. Stronger commodity prices also drove higher sales volumes and margins in our marketing business. 
Strong fundamentals in marketing were, however, offset by realized losses from our, our hedging program. In conjunction with strong first quarter results, Pemin is celebrating a few recent developments. The first is the startup of our Prince Rupert Terminal, or PRT. Dry commissioning of PRT was completed in March, and we have begun loading propane onto vessels in April. So far, two vessels have departed PRT, destined for international markets. I'm also pleased to announce that we have entered into a one-year agreement with a subsidiary of Mitsui, whereby they will purchase substantially all of the post-commissioning cargoes shipped from PRT, with the propane being primarily destined for Northeast Asia. It has been years in the making, and the start of a P PRT represents a major step forward in providing new market solutions and helping add incremental value to the commodities our customers sell. Alongside Pemina's unit train capabilities, PRT will link the rest of our natural gas liquids infrastructure in Western Canada with growing demand markets throughout the world, with the majority of the increased value flowing to those customers within Pemina's marketing pool. PRT has been a real ESG success story as well. Working together with the community, governments, and First Nations, Pemina was able to transform and repurpose a contaminated site on Watson Island, BC, and now moves propane off the West Coast. Pemina invested approximately $12 million in remediation activities and together with the City of Prince Rupert, removed a toxic and abandoned pulp mill, replacing it with key income generating assets that will have lasting benefits for all stakeholders and that the community can be proud of. Secondly, we are also pleased to have signed our first renewable power deal representing another concrete step towards delivering on Pemina's carbon stand by lowering emission intensity of each of our businesses. We have signed a long-term 100 megawatt power purchase agreement, or PPA, with a subsidiary of TransAlta Corporation that supports development of a 130 megawatt garden plane wind project in Alberta. The PPA provides significant benefits to Pembina, including securing cost-competitive renewable energy and fixing the price for carbon of the power Pembina consumes. Further, the PPA is expected to generate approximately 135,000 tons of CO2 equivalent emission offsets annually, or an estimated total of 1.8 million tons of CO2 equivalent emissions offsets. Initially, Pemina will use the offsets to reduce its own emissions with the option to sell or bank future offsets for other uses. The combined emissions reductions available from the PPA and cogeneration facility currently being constructed at the Empress uh, Empress facilities represent approximately 7% of PEMINA's 2019 reported greenhouse gas emissions. PEMINA has committed to reducing the carbon intensity of each business it operates, and by the end of 2021 will have taken concrete action in this area by publishing five-year emission targets. Finally, PEMINA, through its joint venture, Veris and Midstream, safely completed the startup of the Height developments at the existing Height gas plant. After a challenging 2020, I'm pleased to see us deliver a strong start to the year with positive momentum developing on many fronts. With that, I'll pass it over to Scott. Thanks, Mick. Pemina reported strong first quarter adjusted EBITDA of $835 million, consistent with the same period in the prior year. The first quarter was highlighted by increased marketed NGL volumes and higher margins on NGL and crude oil sales, combined with new assets placed into service and facilities, and higher supply volumes at the Redwater Complex. These positive factors were largely offset by lower interruptible volumes on certain systems and pipelines, 
an increase in realized losses on commodity-related derivatives, and higher general and administrative costs and other expenses, largely driven by an increased long-term incentives offset by lower salaries and wages and lower acquisition-related costs. The increased mark-to-market and long-term incentives was driven by an increasing share price in the first quarter of 2021 compared to a decreasing share price in the first quarter of 2020. Fundamentally, our marketing business was particularly strong this quarter. Excluding the realized impacts of commodity-related derivatives, first quarter adjusted EBITDA in marketing and new ventures improved $140 million, or 368%, relative to the first quarter of 2020, and $97 million, or 120%, compared to the fourth quarter of 2020. The underlying marketing business improved significantly. However, our frac spread hedges and other commodity-related derivatives offset some of the increases. Pemina reported strong earnings in the first quarter of $320 million, consistent with the same period in the prior year. In addition to the factors positively impacting adjusted EBITDA, as I previously noted, earnings were positively impacted by a decrease in net finance costs due to lower foreign exchange losses. Earnings were also positively impacted by a decrease in current tax expense as a result of lower taxable income and a reduction in the Alberta corporate tax rate. Earnings were negatively impacted by an unrealized loss on commodity-related derivative financial instruments in the first quarter of the current year, compared to significant gains in the first quarter of the prior year, and a lower share of profit from Ruby. Total volumes was 3.5 million barrels per day in the first quarter, down only slightly from the same period in the prior year. Lower interruptible volumes and pipelines due to reduced upstream activity in 2020, partially offset by higher supply volumes of the Redwater complex, higher seasonal volumes on Alliance pipeline, and higher interruptible volumes on the Ruby pipeline. While volumes in the first quarter were down slightly over the first quarter last year, the real story, as Mick noted in his opening comments, is the steady rise in volumes over most of 2020 and now into 2021, with physical volumes in April reaching pre-pandemic levels. Given the year-to-date results and the outlook for the remainder of the year, Pemina is reiterating its previously disclosed 2021 adjusted EBITDA guidance of $3.2 to $3.4 billion. Pemina's 2021 capital program is fully funded by cash flow after dividends, and towards the middle and upper end of the guidance range, excess cash flow will be available for debt reduction, dividend increases, or opportunistic common share repurchases. During the first quarter of 2021, the timing of certain cash payments and receipts resulted in a draw on working capital, and consequently, no excess discretionary cash flow was available. As the year progresses, Pemina will continue to assess the optimal allocation of, a, of excess discretionary cash flow based on the outlook for new capital investments beyond 2021 and the prevailing price of Pemina's common shares. Finally, I am pleased to note that last week, DBRS Limited upgraded its ratings to triple B high in respect of Pemina's senior unsecured medium-term notes. This upgrade further validates the strength of Pemina's balance sheet, something we have worked very diligently to maintain, in particular over the past year. I'll now turn things over to Mick for his closing comments. Thanks, Scott. The improvement we have seen in commodity prices resulted in strong first quarter, but it also supports our constructive view of the future activity in the WCSB. We continue to believe that a post-pandemic economic recovery will drive higher activity in the basin, which we believe is only beginning. Higher prices are allowing our producer customers to generate higher than expected cash flow, which is currently driving their aggressive debt reduction and shareholder returns. Ultimately, we expect producer to sanction new drilling activity and Pemina is well positioned to capitalize on that activity, particularly to serve growing volumes in the North East BC Montney and Alberta Duvernay areas. New infrastructure including the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion, LNG Canada, 
Enbridge's Line 3 replacement, and Pembina's and other third-party NGL export terminals are expected to collectively improve relative pricing for Canadian hydrocarbons and support the future growth in the WCSP. As well, the Government of Alberta's continued and increasing support and commitments related to the petrochemical industry, including various incentive programs, are expected to drive higher ethane, propane, and butane demand in Western Canada. We have named these factors collectively Advantage Canada, and we expect them to generate ample opportunities for Pembina. These opportunities include the reactivation of the currently deferred pipeline Phase 8 and 9 expansions, and the expansion of Prince Rupert Terminal, as well as our $4 billion portfolio of unsecured brownfield and greenfield projects. We continue to look at 2021 as a turnaround year with Pemina returning to its traditional growth trajectory by 2022. Before we wrap things up, I want to inform you that once again this year, in light of current circumstances related to pandemic and associated health and travel restrictions, Pemina will not be holding its annual investor day in our typical May-June time slot. We continue to evaluate our options for holding this event either virtually or in person in the fall of this year. We do, however, hope you can join us for our annual meeting of shareholders, which will be held today at 2 p.m. Mountain Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Again this year, it will be a virtually only meeting conducted via live audio webcast. Participants are recommended to register for the virtual webcast at least 10 minutes before the presentation start time. For further information on Pemina's virtual AGM, please visit the shareholder information page under the Investor Center tab at www.pemina.com. We would once again like to thank all, all of our stakeholders for their support. With that, we'll wrap things up. Operator, please go ahead and open the line. At this time, ladies and gentlemen, as a reminder to ask a question, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. To withdraw your question, press the pound key. Please stand by while we compile the Q&A roster. Our first question will come from the line of Matt Taylor with Tudor, Pickering, Holt & Company. Hey, yeah, thanks for taking my questions here. I wanted to start first with your uh, bullish comments there on physical volume improvement and customer behavior. Uh, can you help bridge, bridge the gap with what you're seeing um, and hearing from customers on new capital being, being put to work uh, at the drill bit versus what investors are seeing in terms of producers still at maintenance levels? Is, is the torque you're, you're seeing and expecting coming from certain areas or, or customers? Uh, we're seeing growth in Northeast BC in the Cardium. Uh, our, our NGL business volumes are, are uh, quite quite good at, at Redwater, and and so you're you're seeing it you're seeing it throughout. I mean, we we did reach pre-pandemic levels in in April. Uh, certain areas, Strait Valley, been been very strong, and of course that all feeds our marketing business as well. Great, and, and the, just as a follow-up to that too, it looks like uh, like your EBITDA guidance is predicated on, on levels compared to last year versus you know new growth. So can you just frame how how this torque fits into that EBITDA guidance, and then and even potentially restarting projects? Um, we, you know, when we set the guidance, uh, we, we had a much different different uh, price deck, and I think uh, most people on the globe would be 
pleasantly surprised that the price of oil is in the mid 60s and the and you know propane price I think is 90 cents at Bellevue and and gas prices are sneaking up on three dollars Canadian up here 270 I think it is so we're seeing um, something we don't see very often which is all three volume streams working at the same time normally at least one isn't working uh, or or many times two are not working and, and we're seeing all three working and so notwithstanding you know uh, I think the 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 sense you have is, is people are uh, mainly focused on debt reduction. Uh, I would agree with that, but people are starting to uh, uh, return to the drill bit quietly, and uh, we think that'll accelerate as people, you know, meet. I'm reading uh, the, the very uh, lovely reports of of our customers, and they're paying down debt at re in record amounts and their share prices are going up which makes me think you know they're only going to buy back their shares for so long before they return to growth and and you know they've been they've been assessing uh, where to grow and so we you know I think we can assume they, they know exactly how to maximize their their capital deployment we think that's coming later in the year and into into next year and we sit with still uh, a, a good amount of capacity. We're just kind of breaking through that take or pay level and uh, it's going to go to us, you know, so we, we are uh, pretty, pretty excited about uh, where we are in the first quarter. I mean, uh, yeah, we, we were slightly over hedged, uh, wouldn't do anything differently. Um, you know, we put on those hedges in the, in the second wave of the pandemic, I think that was prudent. I think you you guys pay us to be careful, and uh, we were. Uh, but uh, a lot of those, uh, well, over half of our hedges were uh, were discretionary, not part of our non-discretionary program. Those all end at the end of the quarter, and um, we're we're pretty optimistic, being at pre-pandemic uh, volumes and 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 sensing the build starting to happen with. You know, if these prices keep up, uh, it's going to get it's going to get exciting. Yeah, thanks for that color there, Mick. Maybe just to clarify your comments there, like my understanding is is that guide is is looking at 2020 levels and and you know if there's inc in incremental interruptible in the system or various you know other pieces of your business that see improvement. So is it really what you're framing here is is torque that gets you to the top end of the guide and beyond as opposed to uh, you know the, the level it looks achievable at least from your base business perspective thus far this year um, you know we thought long and hard about what we would say about the guidance range I, I think it's just not prudent in the first quarter to to be looking out uh, to the fourth quarter uh, you know uh, th this is a very uncertain world we're we're really pleased with uh, with where we are in the first quarter both from a volume and from a pricing uh, perspective, I think our marketing business is very well situated, but we just don't think it's prudent to to uh, uh, predict in this world that you're going to go through the top end of the guidance range. So we've 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 stayed in within the guidance range. We're comfortable there. Yeah, Matt. Maybe I'll just add a couple a couple uh, points of color. You know, I, I think, um, you know, unhedged, uh, the first quarter would have set us up nicely to move into the upper half of that range. Mick pointed out, obviously, we had some incremental discretionary hedges uh, that, that lowered that a little bit. You know, as we look forward, we're still facing uh, a few headwinds like FX. 
obviously FX has come down pretty materially from from the budget, and so that's that's a headwind. And and you got to remember that the back half of the year we'll see lower contributions from Ruby with those contracts generally rolling off mid-year. Now, I think that's offset by, as Mick said, the strong physical volumes throughout April. We've also seen the, the commodity curve generally been in backwardation through most of the year, but every month we move along, it tends to get pushed out a, a month or two. Um, so, you know, I think our, our, our view is, is that the commodity curve should, should continue to remain robust throughout the back half of the year. Uh, but that's slightly different than what the, the current forward curve is showing us in backwardation. And of course, we still have our focus from 2020 on, on maintaining costs and keeping those cost savings in 2021. So, you know, I think we're feeling pretty optimistic, but it's just a little too early uh, in the year to, to revise guidance. Okay. Yeah, thanks for all that, that good detail there. I'll leave it there. Our next question comes to line from Jeremy Tonnet with J.P. Morgan. Hi, good morning. Hi, Jeremy. Just want to uh, dive in, I guess, a little bit to the moving pieces here. Uh, I was wondering, um, you know, for hedging, um, if you could provide a bit more color on what's locked in for the back half of the year, just how much open versus hedged at this point, and, you know, how, how do those hedges look, I guess, relative to the strip? I mean, as, as you noted there, I think there was, what, $88 million of upside that would have been captured without hedging, and, of course, it's prudent to hedge, but just trying to get a sense for, you know, how the back half of the year could look uh, versus the current strip, given your hedging book. I'll turn it over to, to Scott in a minute. Uh, the, the hedging program uh, at the highest level is, is really just a non-discretionary program that we have, which is kind of, you know, half of our NGL business and excluding Oxable. So we, we stopped the discretionary, uh, or sorry, the non-discretionary part effective this quarter, uh, realizing that uh, commodity prices, um, you know, are looking much more robust than we anticipated, say, in the fourth quarter of last year. Scott, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, sure, Jeremy. Um, you, you know, when you look out, you know, we, based on the current strip, uh, you know, we, we still have the frac spreads, frac spreads in place that we put, uh, that we put in place in 2020. Uh, so those are obviously underwater. And, and again, just as a reminder for the rest of the year, it's only on the frac spread business. The winter storage or Oxable are unhedged. You know, based on the current strip, we're looking at at forecasted losses in the neighborhood of of twenty to twenty five million dollars on the NGL side of the business. Got it. That's uh, that's helpful. Thanks. And then, you know, with the um, the corporate expense was a bit higher than what we expected this quarter. Uh, I guess you know what what should we be thinking about as a run rate? Appreciate there was some LTIP noise, some retirement noise in there that made it a bit higher. But just thinking about what's kind of normalized uh, at, at this point. Yeah, J Jeremy, I, I think in the in the first quarter, um, you know, obviously, as, as you pointed out, there's the mark to market on some of the incentives. And, and by, by way of background, we used to provide a sensitivity that, you know, a $1 change uh, in our share price is roughly a million dollars uh, of, of G&A, just, just as a sensitivity. And so, you know, with the share price going, you know, from $32 to $30, $38 a quarter end, that obviously had an impact on the quarterly results. We also had some one-time um, uh, consulting fees that we're working on uh, as we work through some of our optimization initiatives. So there was a few, there's a little bit of noise in the quarter, 
uh, on, on the long run, we're probably looking at roughly 40 million per, per quarter. Or sorry, uh, sorry, yeah, 40 million per quarter on, on the corporate costs. Got it, okay. So it doesn't seem like corporate is really that different maybe than what you budgeted for the year. Because if I'm looking at just pipeline and facility segment, that's 800 for this quarter. And if I annualize that without even thinking about marketing, that gets you at 3.2, the bottom end of the range. And if you talk about the kind of the improved producer outlook, um, you know, granted there are some roll-offs, but it seems like uh, quite well positioned within the range. So just wondering, is this first quarter kind of match your, what you were expecting here? Are there any kind of benefits uh, that maybe wouldn't repeat in uh, subsequent quarters? Um, I, I think, uh, you know, again, uh, I would just want to temper what, what I'm about to say that it, it's early in the year, but we think volumes are going to continue to build and marketing is going to continue to improve and that we'll be able to manage our, our, our GNA at uh, uh, kind of budgeted levels, which uh, I think is around $300 million uh, total for the year. Yep. Yeah, Jer Jeremy, I should. We just we just got to make sure we're talking apples to apples. My 40 million was roughly corporate. We also have obviously GNA within within the businesses. So you know, on an absolute basis, aggregate, it's about 60 to 65 million dollars per per quarter. Got it. Understood. I will leave it there. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Ben Pham with BMO. Hi. Thanks. Good morning. Uh, on your uh, your wind project, you announced with Transout. Um, I'm just curious, how, how do you uh, how do you weigh or consider the the relative difference between uh, building the wind yourself versus getting somebody else uh, to do it? Because you've you know, you've done some some of the, the co-gen stuff uh, uh, in house. Uh, so I'm curious how you, you look at that uh, relative difference. Um, we, we just look at it like any other project. Uh, with that particular project, uh, you, as you know, we, we, you may not know, we have a small wind uh, project already that we, we got with Verison. I think it's a 20 megawatt project. Um, we, we look at like any capital allocation decision. Uh, we're learning, we're studying it. We, we do have an option on that uh, wind farm to participate up to 50%. Um, but at, at this time, uh, we've decided not to allocate our own capital to it. But we do have a huge demand of, of power. So, um, you know, we, we have big economies of scale. We can, we can develop strategic relationships for, for wind power. And then uh, we're leaving open the option uh, to, to participate in that and, and self-supply to a point. But um, at this point, it has not attracted capital. All right. Uh, and there's uh, some reference to uh, uh, rising power costs in, in a quarter, so that's the Alberta power price. Um, uh, is, can you remind me, is that, do you recover that uh, in your business? Is it, is it weighing your, your EBITDA instead? And, and, and maybe just an overall comment on, on inflationary pressures you're seeing, any, any sort of protections you have there? Yeah, the, generally our, our variable costs, well, almost to to, uh, to a very large degree, our variable costs flow through. The only place they don't are in our extraction business, where are like our straddle plants, where we we warehouse that power cost, and 
And that's one of the reasons we're building cogeneration at, at our, all of our big uh, plants is we can lower our, both our emissions uh, and, our, and take kind of control over our future uh, prices and, and have uh, electricity uh, aligned with gas pricing rather than with grid pricing. And then the, the what, what about uh, you know, trade, labor, steel? Like you, you start to, to build up the piece expansions. Any, anything to consider on, on inflationary pressures potentially? Uh, not not right now, really. Um, you know, the the if you think back about our our largest projects like Phase Seven, we we bought the steel pre-pandemic, so that was sitting. Uh, the pipe was sitting in inventory. Recall we had invested about 300 million. That was largely for the tangibles, and so that was all hedged at yesteryear's uh, uh, pricing. And uh, most of our big projects are completely locked in. So we we locked a, a lot of that uh, that cost in uh, at a very uh, favorable time. Actually, on the on the heels of Keystone XL being cancelled, we we. Uh, uh, our, our, our skilled staff locked in a bunch of uh, costs uh, on that, Terry. Um, yeah, that on, on the steel side, that's a good answer, Mick. On, on the labor side, we're seeing, frankly, a really positive trend from our end. We have our contracts in place with two mainline contractors on the two spreads for say, phase seven. We've seen really directionally good pricing on both the mainline contracting and then the HDDs that need to happen as well. So, very happy with it as we sit here today. All right, that, that's great. Okay, thank you, everybody. Your next question comes from the line of Linda Ergazales with TD Securities. Thank you. Um, I, I'm wondering, as we look at the energy transition, um, I think most people view some of the uh, political and, and economic constraints as, as dictating the pace as to be more of an evolution than a revolution. But I'm wondering if there might be some opportunities to accelerate your journey through either potentially um, acquiring, divested, divesting, or repurposing certain parts of your uh, business or assets. I'm thinking specifically of, you know, maybe carbon capture or hydrogen and, you know, maybe even purchasing late-stage development uh, technologies or expertise that you might not have currently. Can you comment on what you might be seeing out there that, that would uh, 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 kind of fill out some of the blank spaces in your long-term strategy and vision? Sure, Linda. We're, we're, we're thinking a lot about that. Um, you know, we, we don't really think we bring anything to solar. Uh, you know, that, that you know, what what uh, things does Pamina bring to solar? Well, not much. To wind, um, limited again, you know, uh, and, and hence we're, you know, uh, partnering with people rather than building wind ourselves. But when it comes to carbon capture, um, we are working, uh, running a pilot at, at Redwater that's early stages to, to capture the CO2 from Redwater to see how all that works. Uh, we do currently already produce hydrogen, so that's within the skill set. So the whole that whole field of of uh, electric generation from gas and then sequestering it, uh, and and you know we're we're good at all parts of that. You know, uh, uh, a carbon capture uh, system is really an aiming train that 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 we have and operate. You know, the the transportation I think uh, you know through pipes that speaks for itself. And then the the injection, you know, uh, 
the industry has been injecting acid gas for decades, so we're, we're really good at that. So we have all the skills, and you're right, we do have uh, a great footprint, great right-of-ways that we can that we can leverage. So we're we're thinking a lot about that, and and uh, you know when when you think about you know supplying CO2 to EORs, uh, most of the the great EOR uh, targets are within our footprint, and so uh, if whether we do it or someone else injects CO2 into you know the Cardium, which is you know one of the best reservoirs, or up in Swan Hills, or down in Bonnie Glen area, that, that all gets return tripped on our on our facility. So we 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 kind of have an advantage uh, in 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 that area, and we're uh, it's one of the things Stu's Stu's spending a lot of time on right now. Thank you. Um, maybe um, also on a, on a slightly separate note, um, you, there's you know you mentioned that you're reviewing your hedging profile. You know, there's a lot of change going on in the industry, and there's a lot of change in your asset mix as well with your uh, recent uh, LPG export capabilities being uh, quite notable on that front. Can you talk about how the hedging might evolve to reflect uh, all of these changes going on and whether that might uh, create opportunities to either increase your exposure as you integrate along the value chain to commodity prices or um, reconsider your uh, you know, financial guardrails and the level of contracting that's appropriate. Uh, we we like our guardrails still. Uh, we just recently finished a strategy session with our board. They're very supportive, and and uh, I look forward to the AGM kind of reviewing all that this afternoon. But you know, those guardrails served us really, really well. I mean, we pretty much hit our our uh, midpoint of our guidance and set, you know, uh, if you if you zoom out, we we actually had a record year for EBITDA last year, and that that's really the diversification, the guardrails, and all those things. So, so very pleased with how that served us, and you know, sometimes it bites you, like with our first quarter hedging losses, but we, um, you know, we get paid to produce steady and growing dividends, and we're good at that, and. That's why people uh, buy the stock, so we're going to keep going. As it relates to, to hedging and, and Rupert, um, recall only a quarter of those volumes are our proprietary volumes. Three quarters uh, through our marketing pool are producer volumes. So they're the ones who are going to get this, this great bay price. We'll get some. They'll get a lot. And, you know, we, we differentiate ourselves, I think, from competition by, by bringing customers' markets uh, customer volume to the markets rather than just our own, and uh, that'll start to to flow through. And there's going to be some smiles on people's faces when they get the pay pay net back. So there isn't really a ton of incremental hedging to do there uh, on on Rupert. Uh, from our perspective, it's just a nice diversification, you know, beyond Edmonton, Sarnia, Conway, and Bellevue, just to have this brand new. New market and and uh, you know our our off taker reflects uh, the way we want to go is is to slowly go more global and have some demand pull customers. Thank you. I'll jump back in the queue. Our next question comes in line of Robert Kwan with RBC Capital Markets. Great. Good morning. Um, start with the conventional pipeline system and and first in the near term. You talked about the record volumes in April. I'm just wondering if you can square up, because I know you report revenue volumes, but how did physical volumes look in Q1, and how's that squaring up um, with your comments for, for April? 
Yeah, so, so on, a, on a physical basis, Robert, I think, um, you know, we, we saw a pretty steady increase throughout the, the first quarter, uh, you know, especially in March where we saw volumes uh, just about get back to, to pre-pandemic uh, volumes. We've seen that strength continue uh, throughout April. In fact, April physical volumes uh, were in the neighbourhood of, of, call it, uh, 2 to 3% above where we saw in March. And actually, April physical volumes on the conventional system uh, were, were almost back to, to all-time highs, uh, you know, in line with where we exited uh, 2019. Uh, and, and in April, volumes were above uh, where we saw any monthly volume in, in 2020. So we're continuing to see strength uh, on the conventional pipeline system. Yeah, and just a reminder, Robert, like, like we're, those are only uh, attracting a small fixed cost burden. As you know, the variable costs flow through, and every barrel gathered is a barrel marketed. So we've got great torque here from, from this point forward. And Mick, I think that's probably what you were getting at. So not only do you have the physical volumes on the pipeline system, but what percentage of, of those incremental volumes do you have that further torque of they're feeding into Redwater? I'm not sure if the contractual you know, take or pay levels are similar, but as well the ability for you to take that barrel and then make a bunch more money marketing and touch it again. Um, for, for oil, it's 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 very highly correlated. Almost every barrel that, that we bring in is a barrel marketed for, for NGL, not quite as much. But, um, you know, I think a, a, quarter, a quarter of the barrels roughly coming out of the back end of Redwater uh, belong to us, as well as all the frac spread barrels, right, at Empress, at Taylor. And so, you know, there we're, we're, fully, we're fully exposed. Um, and uh, this is a good time to be exposed. Go ahead, Jared. Hi, Robert. It's Jared here. I just wanted to add that, you know, we're also seeing a fundamental shift on on where our customers are ultimately drilling. You know, they're moving away from that really um, volatile oil, uh, very liquids-rich condensate into the gassier space with, with ACO and, and Chicago pricing staying strong. And with that, we're also seeing record 30-day and 180-day IPs on the gas side. Like if you look at any reports now, they're just phenomenal rates, like 15, 20 million a day for you know a sustained period. So with that, what's not changing is the 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 richness of the the NGLs in the gas. So the more gas that we're seeing through our our physical processing plants, I, th I think roughly on a on a quarter to quarter Q4 to Q1, we saw an incremental 200 million a day of physical volume going through our our gas processing assets. Obviously, with the frac spreads being very strong. We're seeing a lot of NGLs come. Um, obviously, those obviously flow through conventional into uh, red water, and then ultimately uh, through our marketing business. Which you know that's that's kind of that torque that Mick was talking about. So you're seeing the two things: the change of the types of wells and the the increase of the volume. Got, got it. Um, can you talk about within conventional as well? The, the discussions that you are having with customers and, and specifically thinking about, you know, how you bring back phases eight and nine. You did mention that, you know, the customer contracts are still there, but can you also frame the discussions? Are you seeing any slippage, you know, now that um, CAPS is going forward? And if you have any comments as well, 
with respect to uh, the Northeast BC Connector Project filing um, and what that might mean for you? Um, we're, we're advancing key conversations, uh, Robert, and, and uh, we'll, we'll stay with the, the guidance we provided earlier this year that, um, you know, by the, by the second half of the year, we'll be able to say something about phase eight and nine as well as the Rupert expansion. But uh, we, we, we are uh, on track to make some comments uh, like that later in the year. It's just a little bit too early. More of a rising tide, or more of a zero-sum game. Um, we are very comfortable that uh, we we can announce those projects later in the year, and uh, that they'll be very well anchored. Um, if I can just finish. Uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. So, Robert, Robert, the way I think about it is. It's, it's really threefold. Jarrett absolutely nailed it um, when he talked about HVP volumes started. So that's the first piece. We on, on the conventional system, we really started to see early in the first quarter a rise in HVP volumes across all our systems. And then what came secondly was uh, a corresponding rise in LVP volumes. And if you have a look at Drayton Valley in particular, they are um, just above in April pre-pandemic levels. So it's been really positive. The third thing we've been watching is we've been watching how volumes respond because we're right in about the middle of breakup and the volumes have been really strong throughout the middle of breakup. And then the fourth thing is in our customer conversations. Customers have been focused on getting to their take or pay levels during the first quarter and conversations are now starting to return to additional volumes above that. So we feel really positive directionally for those four reasons um, where we're going. and I, you know, I think we also feel confident um, speaking into the mic in the back half of the year in phases eight and nine. Yeah, and the, the, the one intricacy that maybe people don't fully understand in Northeast BC is the, the, the system that reaches into the heart of NEBC is, is a cost of service system. And so as the customers fill that, their per unit tolls drop. And so that system gets ever more competitive. Uh, it, it used to be a pretty expensive system when Patronus anchored it, what, five years ago? And now it's getting super competitive uh, as, it, as it fills and as we consider looping it for, you know, not, not a lot of money. So the, the, the customers up there are creating their own future and driving down their, their own fees. And, and so that's, that's a key pipe and uh, it's a... It's a a really key competitive advantage that uh, customers have really created for themselves up there. And then when you look at Northeast BC, Robert, I think we all know that, you know, two and 3,000 or 5,000 barrels isn't going to do it. You have to have a material volume. And so we're working hard with those customers that have that, and we feel really confident directionally. Thanks. Um, and I just to finish here, um, any commentary, whether it's volumes, yeah, or and or pricing, especially just comparing to the 2020 year, just for the NGL year here. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll turn it over to Stu. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's the pricing now is like way better than last year. Um, I think I'm just trying to remember my AGM numbers, but I think it was 50 cents last year, and we're at 90 cent Bellevue. I think those were the the, the numbers in, that I'm going to present this afternoon. So. It's, you know, and yes, gas prices uh, are, are a little more, 
but you're you're talking two dollars roughly to maybe two seventy. So you've got a double, let's call it uh, rounded a double on uh, on uh, NGL pricing, and and you've only got a uh, a fifty percent increase in gas pricing year over year. So uh, that that's a lot to us. So we're we're um, you know I, I don't know where exactly we're heading to in terms of a uh, the full year, but um, we're we're way ahead of where we thought we'd be in the first quarter. Robert, I won't add a lot more. I think Mick's covered it. Um, you know, we we had a great uh, gas recontracting, uh, you know, our NGL recovery at our at our facilities when when we're out um, uh, securing gas. So we're really really pleased where we are. I think we've already covered. We're seeing strong pricing. There will be some softening through the summer months as we go, but we are expecting to to uh, you know come back uh, with very very strong pricing in the fourth quarter. Uh, but across the board, some some significant improvement over 2020, and excited about where we're going. And I'm sorry, I was just asking about the, on the procurement side. Did you were you able to capture similar volumes and and with you know headline NGL prices moving higher? Are you seeing a similar these percentage shifts in your procurement cost on the buy side uh, we you know we've paid up to obviously with the pricing going up there but again it's not substantially different so we were, we were very very pleased with our procurement of the gas on the gas side of where we ended up that's great thank you our next question comes to the line of Chris Tillett with Barclays uh, hey guys, good morning. Uh, thanks for taking my question. Um, I guess maybe to just to shift gears here a little bit, I, can you talk about um, the, the progression of phase eight and nine? Uh, how, you know how the discussions are going there, um, and then the contracts that you have in place that you mentioned in the release are those, um, you know, with with new customers or are those sort of expansions of, of contracts with existing customers? Um, just curious to hear sort of an update on that. Uh, the, you know, we're we're doing the engineering for those projects. As, as you saw with Phase Seven, we've kind of delaminated Phase Seven a little bit. I mean, we took a lot of costs out of Seven. Uh, a lot of it was outright savings. Some of it was scope, and so we're getting a little forensic on eight, nine, and maybe nine goes before eight. We'll see. Uh, so, you know, we're 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 trying to mix and match that. Uh, the, the tricky part is you only get to put the, the pipe in the ground once, and so what size do you put in? And that, that's kind of what we're waiting for with, to see, you know, which uh, remaining anchor tenants we can land, and, and that'll drive the physical design, so we're, we're carrying different options. Um, but the, the original customers, I mean, they, they, they're signed, so uh, they, they remain in place. Uh, but but uh, there, are, there are some very exciting developments um, up in Northeast BC, uh, I'm sure you're all aware of them, and and uh, you know we're we're working hard to 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 capture those before we announce exactly what Phase Eight and Nine look like. Okay, um, and then obviously um, you know you you sort of need to know the sizing there before you can have a, a better grasp on capital expectations. But is there anything you know you might be able to tell us at this point in terms of um, you know where those might land relative to prior expectations. Uh, I I I think that um, if if things work out, we, we'll have possibly a, a, a lot more volume and a lot 
longer runway uh, to growth there. That's kind of what we're seeing right now than, than we thought before. Derek, go ahead. Well, I just okay. think Harry talked about Harry talked about some of the, you know, procurement, et cetera. Yeah, there is inflationary pricing, but, you know, I think we're making excellent headway on, you know, driving down our overall uh, diameter French mile cost as well. Yeah, let me summarize it by saying we, we believe NEBC is more exciting than we thought when we FID'd it the first time. Um. Okay, great. Thanks. Thanks so much for for that. And then I guess uh, last one for me is, you know, obviously the last six months have seen quite a bit of um, M&A activity in in Western Canada. Uh, you know, I guess particularly and specifically in areas that are served by the peace system. Um, so we'd just be curious to know kind of your thoughts about where in that cycle you think we are today. Um, and and how you think you know the, the M&A um, impacts you guys moving forward? Uh, can you just specify what kind of M&A you mean, like loose assets, corporates, or or just in general? Um, yeah, sort of all of the above, I guess. Sure. I mean, we're you know we we've got a, a great value chain, and so uh, we we normally have kind of embedded advantages when it comes to, to to loose asset purchases. We're always on the on the lookout there, of course. Um, we we've really focused through 2020 on uh, our profitability, our return on invested capital, and I think the the full impact of that will start to show in in 2022. So we're still very focused on on cost and the I think we we uh, took about 150 million out of our cost structure uh, last year we're working hard to maintain that and uh, so that's our our primary focus um, you know as our share price uh, comes up our currency improves uh, more things become possible but uh, we are we are uh, right now focused more on profitability and in that torque as, as we've been trying to message you know, when we fill up existing assets, it's almost infinite, you know, return. And uh, we, we look absolutely outstanding. If we, can, if we can improve our utilization, say, from, you know, 75 to 80% to, you know, uh, 90% and keep our costs in check, uh, we just sing. And, and that's our primary focus. Right. Um, yeah, okay, that's helpful. I think... I guess maybe just to clarify, I meant more, um, you know, how has the upstream M&A, um, you know, oh, impacted, okay, sorry. Uh, you know, the, the, your assets? Um, you know, positively, like we, we uh, from a counterparty credit, we've seen a, a, you know, like with the ARC 7G uh, merger, you know, we had, uh, they became investment grade, uh, they became more capable, uh, you know, they've, They've all taken uh, their their debt down. Like I, I'm looking across the universe, everyone is just getting after their debt. I mean, I looked at CNQ's release the other day, and and so that's that's really uh, really positive. We we tend to see the 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 biggest producers who have huge plans. They they like dealing with with you know real pipe and uh, that's in the ground that they know they can rely on, and so. Generally, uh, not just from a financial guardrails uh, perspective, but from a commercial perspective, 
um, you know, people, the, 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 the biggest companies tend to transact with us, so we, we're pretty pleased with how that's working out. Okay, uh, perfect. Thank, thank you very much. Your next question comes from the line of Robert Cotelier with CIBC Capital Markets. Yeah, you've uh, answered mo most of my questions here. I I'm just curious on the Ruby pipeline term loan that was repaid in April and um, any other financial support that might be needed going forward. What uh, level of support is required from the owners to uh, to make those payments? Yeah, Robert, you're correct. The, the Ruby pipeline uh, term loan was repaid in April uh, with, with with funds at Ruby. Uh, there's no additional support required uh, with with Ruby from the owners. Okay, great. And then just a uh, uh, clarification here: if, if the event we get a shutdown on uh, line five, uh, how that impacts your your business and um, you know, what mitigation plans do you have in place? And specifically, is the Prince Rupert Terminal and uh, some of the other export options available on the NGL side now enough to, to effectively mitigate that uh, with respect to any exposure you might have and any headwinds getting to your uh, guidance? Robert, um, when, when we built the Empress fractionation facility, which came into service, um, we, we built it to, to make money, and it's making money. Uh, it's working out great. But we also built it as a hedge in case eastbound volumes, west to east volumes, uh, uh, ran into problems. And so, um, you know, we, we, can, we can rail out of that facility now, and, and we can rail to Sarnia if we need to. Uh, that line shuts down. Sarnia is going to get pretty expensive, but we can get our product there still. But you're absolutely correct. We can also get those volumes elsewhere, whether it's south or west. So, um, uh, again, partially, we, we, we primarily built that to make money, uh, but we also built it uh, in a defensive way just in case this happened. So, um, you know, it would be uh, terrible and unprecedented uh, for this to occur, but um, we do have contingency plans in place. Jared, anything to add? Yeah, just to add that, you know, Mick mentioned in Sarnia, like we move those volumes from west to east and, and frack them out there. But we also have a large storage position in Corona with rail and trucking um, inbound and outbound. So if in the unfortunate event that would happen, um, that um, asset would be highly coveted. Okay, and then I just want to make sure I understand the risk transfer on the Matsui uh, agreement. It seems like most of the spread benefits uh, seem to accrue to the uh, to your marketing customers. So are you effectively uh, on that piece of the business uh, now, sort of in a fee for service or in a tolling type uh, type contractual arrangement? Yeah, the the way the the marketing pool works, Robert, is is. Uh, all of our volumes, including Peminus, so roughly a quarter of the volumes are ours and three quarters of the volumes we're the agent for, um, they, they get what we get. So, you know, if they, we ship to, to Conway, we rail to Conway, we deduct the rail cost. If we take it through PRT, we deduct the, the, the toll at PRT and the rail cost. And, and so it's just uh, uh, three quarters fee for service and one quarter is proprietary to us. So it's kind of like, you know, that's the reason our marketing pool is, is so successful is, 
is that uh, you know we, we have the greatest economies of scale in the sector to get to uh, premium markets, and because we we give our customers what we get, and so they're, we're shoulder to shoulder, and and that creates tremendous alignment, um, and and uh, we think it's the the winning model. Yeah, I, I appreciate that aspect of the model. I'm just curious on the Mitsui agreement if uh, if you're still and the whole marketing pool is long the spread to Asia, or if Mitsui um, has ended into uh, to Asia spread. It's it's the former, Robert. At this point in time, like again, we we deliver the product, we uh, load the the vessel, and uh, Mitsui is selling that product. And as Mick said. We're covering our costs um, um, for 75%, but it's it's essentially um, those barrels are are selling into the Asian market at this point, and, and so that's that's how the deal is struck with Mitsui. Okay, thank you. Our next question comes online from Shanir Kershani with UBS. Hi, good morning, everyone. Um, most of my questions have been asked and answered. Um, I just wanted to come back to the eight and nine expansion for a second here. As I've been sort of listening to your responses to the various questions, um, I'm trying to wonder, I'm trying to think about how to think about when it actually gets FID'd, um, you know, whether you're fourth in goal or not. Just like if you're at the point where you're discussing, you know, you know, scope and size and so forth. Does that mean that we're we're pretty close to the point where you could FID it, and it's something that you know could be spent potentially in in 21 um, or mostly in 22, or or am I misreading that? And it's probably going to still take some time, just given the recovery and where it's at. Um, consider we FID those projects once already, and then pulled them back. So they're 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 very well understood. Uh, from a routing regulatory perspective, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's just a matter of what what is physically required, uh, given the rapid uh, given the rapidly emerging picture in, in NEBC and what that prize might might look like. So we just need a little bit. You know, we're just measuring measuring twice before we we cut there, and and uh, you know, we have some things we'd like to get done before we. We uh, we move that thing forward, Harry. Any anything to add there? I think Mick hit the nail on the head. You know, it's looking really, really good. You know, I think as, as Mick alluded to earlier in the call, you could probably see Phase Nine resanctioned earlier, but there, there's probably a twofold reality: is um, how the industry and our producer community are thinking about what they need next has shifted slightly. So we are adjusting with them in the context of Phase Eight and Nine. And then secondly, I believe Mick and the team have talked about um, the optimization process we've, we're going through here, and that's resulted in clearly some optimization across our conventional business, and we're looking to take advantage of that initially before we um, spend money on new capital. So there's, um, I think, safe to say some barrels freed up through our optimization process that has really helped that, so we're looking to fill that first and then um, get into the new capital. Yeah, just just on that, we used to call that phase ten. Just for for those who uh, heard about phase ten, so as we do kind of a sweeping review of our pipe and you know uh, across the board, uh, we realize Koshin has way more capacity embedded in it than than we thought before, and we're we're already using a, a bunch of that incremental capacity with more to come. 
uh, piece, we've freed up tens of thousands of barrels a day uh, through optimization. And again, uh, with technology, we uh, expect that to continue to improve. And so when you're, you know, let's just say hypothetically, we could move 50 or 60,000 barrels a day more down piece that obviously impacts our design. And so uh, those things are all in a, in a iteration right now, cross-referenced against what the demands and when uh, those demands from, from customers will evolve in, in NEBC. So again, we're, we're, we're working it. Um, we're optimistic we can uh, say more about it in the second half of this year along with the Prince Rupert expansion. If I can just clarify my understanding to, to your response there, because this sounds very interesting. Are you essentially saying through the optimization process that you've effectively, you've effectively been able to create essentially one of the phases synthetically? Um, is that sort of the way to think about it? So it sort of delays the need for some capital, but you can still actually, you know, capture the, the volumes and the associated cash flow. Is that, is that the right way to be thinking about it? That, that is that is correct. Uh, that that we are creating uh, parts of those phases uh, through just getting more through the pipe. I mean, c consider the you know if you kind of go back five ten years, we've been building, building, building. We never had a, a, a pandemic to to stop and 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 look what these systems can actually do. And uh, so we've had that time to to engineer, re-engineer. And uh, we are producing, you know, that capacity synthetically at, at no cost uh, throughout our systems or throughout our pipeline universe. We've never had that opportunity before. And so uh, that is partially, you know, what led to phase seven. You know, we didn't have to build out all of phase seven because we realized phase seven optimized could move uh, virtually as much capacity as all of phase seven. So we took... $150 million out of that, that cost estimate. So that is what is going on. And part of the reason that we're taking, you know, a friend used to say a pause for the cause to make sure we don't overcapitalize these, these assets. And, and all that leads to lower tolls for, for our customers. Uh, a so good way to look at it. Yes, yeah, sorry, please. No, a, a good way to look at it is because peace is obviously a, much more complicated system. The, the example Mick gave on Koshin is perfect. Is you know when when the team looked at Koshin, um, we were able to find 14,000 barrels a day that are flowing today that weren't flowing before with no capital. Right. Okay. Perfect. No, really appreciate the color there. And I was just wondering if we can go back to the Prince Rupert um, expansion potential as well too. Um, I guess. When I sort of think about the the LPG demand uh, in Asia, when I think about shipping, you know, vessel rates have gone up as well, also, which is you know indicative of of, of the strength of that market there. Um, have you been able to handle some of the larger vessels? I think you were talking about an MBC, uh, MGC. I can't remember what the names are correctly. Um, and in you know, is, is the demand there um, to to easily expand, and it's you know something that that you know is also potentially a fourth and goal type of expansion, and and could the opportunity from a pricing perspective be pretty strong just given the global market dynamics? Uh, 100%. The the demand is there uh, right now. Um, 
you know, we could have sold a lot more than we did uh, through our uh, our process. We're very pleased with Mitsui as a, a partner there. Uh, the the question is, you know, do we expand? If if you recall, our original FID was, you know, put in a few more spheres and uh, uh, upgrade the rails somewhat, and you know, kind of go from 25 to 40,000 barrels a day. And that, that's still a legitimate plan, and, and we're, we're realizing that, that even though we're using the smaller handy-sized ships, or they, they are very handy. They, they can get into some really great niche markets, and, and uh, Mitsui's helping us understand that. So uh, we may choose not to go to larger ship size because we, we can access niche markets that no one else can, can access in smaller markets, you know, Hawaii, Alaska, uh, South America, Mexico, uh, they're very well suited for smaller, car smaller cargoes because if you had a VLGC, they'd have to stop in Alaska, partially unload, and then you know, sail to Hawaii, partially unload, and that's just not economic. So uh, the, the handies aren't necessarily a, a liability. But that said, um, we, we have realized we can get the larger And uh, the larger ships don't refrigerate on board, so we'd have to refrigerate on shore. Uh, that's a little more capital intensive. So we're we're studying uh, those those options uh, right now. I think we have uh, at least two options uh, in parallel. Jared, anything else? Yeah, just I would just add, like Nick said, customer demand is high. The relationship with the the community of Prince Rupert, the port, and the surrounding indigenous communities is excellent. Um, and just evaluating the two different work streams that stick with the handies and or, um, you know, go from 150,000 to roughly 250,000 barrels per vessel. Um, so just that work's ongoing and, uh, you know, we expect to, you know, have that wrapped up, you know, mid to later this year. All right. Perfect. Uh, really appreciate the color and, and the discussion towards the end here. Uh, thank you very much and have a great weekend. You as well. Thanks for your interest. Your last question comes to the line of Patrick Kinney with National Bank. Good morning, Mick. Uh, just to, to clarify your comment there around providing more of a growth update in the second half of the year, are you in live discussions today with shippers with respect to the uh, the timing and the need for building out incremental frac capacity, whether at Redwater or you know in the field in BC, and perhaps dovetailing these discussions into rolling over whatever's left on, uh, you know, the near-term contract expiries on peace? Or is that simply your expectation as we step into the second half of the year? We're in live discussions, you know, every single place in the value chain, whether it's processing, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, increases in, in what we need on peace, filling peace, uh, filling alliance, you know, uh, Fractionation, uh, it's soup to nuts. Rupert, you t we talked about Rupert. Um, things things are coming around, you know. And uh, like you know, when we when we think we when we say we think we're going to be the the Pemina of uh, twenty you know seventeen to, to twenty nineteen in twenty twenty two, we we believe that wholeheartedly that that we'll get our capital program back to you know a, a billion and a half to two billion a year. Um, without too much difficulty, uh, we'll keep our costs flat, 
and uh, we'll do a bunch of things that you know of, and we'll probably do a bunch of stuff that might surprise you, uh, as we always have over the last decade. So um, we are feeling, um, you know, we're hit, we've hit play, and and we're we're emerging. So uh, our our morale is is very good. Okay, that that's excellent. Um, and then just maybe one last cleanup question. Back to the PPA with Transalta, obviously checks the ESG box nicely there. But you know, given where power prices were in the quarter, are you now looking to ramp up your contracted power portfolio just as much from a financial standpoint? Um, or do you prefer to keep more of an open position as it relates to power costs? Uh, it's it's mixed. Um, you know, we, we always have to be careful of how we do it. I mean, places like Empress were where we're we bear all the costs for power, uh, we, you know it's it's uh, it's game on and and uh, we're looking to to contract a lot of that out. Places where we flow through, we, we have to be very mindful that that uh, you know we're making the best deal uh, possible on behalf of our our customers. Uh, so far, you know all the deals we're doing are are to our account. Uh, we'll investigate, you know, uh, going beyond that uh, in, in the future. But this won't be the last PPA we do. We think it's a good part of the energy mix for us. And, uh, you know, uh, as you know, we do what we say. And when we say we're going to reduce the emission intensity of every business, uh, we will do that. We're just we're just not going to make uh, grandiose uh, claims about 2050 when we have no idea of how to get there. That's not who we are. Okay, that's great. All makes sense. Thanks, Mick. At this time, there are no further questions. Are there any closing remarks? Yeah, it's uh, Scott here. I'll, I'll just clarify one question before I turn it over to Mick to, to wrap up. Hey, Jeremy, just circling back to your question uh, on, on hedging for the remaining of the year, uh, your previous question asked me for a quarterly run rate on GNA, so I actually answered your question uh, I, I didn't answer it on a quarterly. Ba- I answered it on a quarterly basis, not a yearly basis. So we we expect to have losses of about 20 million per quarter when it relates to NGL, and that's pricing as of as of March 31st. So I just wanted to clarify that my 20 million was per quarter for the rest of the year. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Listen, everybody, um, look forward. We have our AGM at, at 2 p.m. Um, look, looking forward to. Uh, having you tune in for that. Uh, got a very positive message to to deliver on uh, the way we got through 2020, which we're extremely proud of, and and what we see uh, uh, upcoming. And uh, we'll have a nice little video at the end, which is something new, realizing you're all online. It'll be a little more entertaining, and you'll get to meet Janet in person. So looking forward to having you all meet her. So that's 2 p.m. Uh, Mountain Time. Talk to you soon. This concludes today's conference call. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.